Hello, welcome to the podcast Psychiatry Talk. I'm Dr. Michael Blumenfield, the Sidney E. Frank Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College and currently in private practice in Woodland Hills, Los Angeles, California. This podcast will examine various topics in psychiatry and mental health. This will include new interviews with experts in various areas, as well as interviews I've recorded in the past. I will also personally discuss subjects that I've written about in my blog, psychiatrytalk.com, or on new topics. Your comments will always be welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's mblumenfield, B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, at gmail.com. And now let's get going with today's podcast. I'm very pleased uh, to have as my guest on the Psychiatry Talk podcast, the immediate past president of the American Psychiatric Association, Dr. Anita Everett. Her other hat is is the um, chief medical officer of SAMHSA Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Division. She's a community psychiatrist and came to SAMHSA following her 10 years as section director of the Johns Hopkins Bayview Community Psychiatry Program. She's speaking with us today in her role as the immediate APA past president. Welcome to Psychiatry Talk podcast, and thank you for agreeing to speak with me here as outgoing APA president, Dr. Everett. Thank you for having me, Dr. Blumenfeld. How does it feel to be completing your term as APA president? I know that one of your main interests has been physician well-being and burnout. When you were addressing this topic, were you referring to all physicians in general or specifically to psychiatrists? Well, it's to both, actually. And so we're, you know, concerned about the, the well-being of all of the members of, that are in our profession in medicine. Um, we know that it's a big issue. The American Medical Association is one of the organizations that we partnered with uh, in addressing physician well-being and um, we, in the American Board of uh, Psychiatry and Neurology, our board, ABPN, has been also very concerned about this. It's a broad sort of issue that uh, reaches or impacts as many as 50% of the physician workforce. So there's the broad sort of role that, you know, it's, it's, it's pervasive throughout medicine, um, but it's also we know that it impacts psychiatry as well. We, the way we sort of formed our work group, we think of it as impacting us in two ways. One is ourselves as practicing professionals, but also ourselves as uh, often the individuals who are sought after to help out with other professionals. Um, so, for instance, on our, uh, our uh, work group that we formed, our board of trustees work group that we formed, many of the members that were selected to be part of that or nominated and participated as part of that were uh, involved in institutional, um, uh, their institutions that were addressing uh, how staff uh, burn out globally, but also amongst psychiatrists, how staff, uh, how staff, uh, end stage of that can, you know, even unfortunately result in suicide. 
and uh, many of the members of our group had been touched and impacted by very, you know, very end stage or sort of far end um, complications of untreated depression that sometimes is associated with well-being, with burnout, uh, basically. Do you think that being a psychiatrist it makes one particularly vulnerable to having these kind of problems? Well, actually, compared to other of our brethren in other medical specialties, psychiatry is in relatively good shape. So it turns out that less of our, less psychiatry as a profession compared to some other medical specialties are is less likely to experience or report burnout on standardized scales. So the high, highest risk for burnout is um, primary care, emergency room docs, and for some reason, urologists and neurologist. Hmm, so in psychiatry, we're a little bit better than many of our subspecialty friends. So you touched upon this a little bit a little earlier, but what can be done to promote well-being and to mitigate the impact of this burnout? Yeah, well, one of the ways that the work group, which I wouldn't you know, direct any of your listeners to the APA website on well-being and burnout, which is, is, is intended to be a, a go-to place and has a number of resources both, some of which can be accessed immediately, short talks, short tips, like that, that might be of value to any member. The way I like to think of that is, you know, if you have a no-show during your, your day, run through your, your schedule and you have a no-show or some unexpected amount of time, you can go to this website, you can take a survey anonymously that is one of these standardized scales, um, and find out a little bit about what other people say and think about burnout, and also there's a series of, of uh, TED-style talks that are oriented to be resources for members, as well as a toolkit. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of one, what, what the ways that we focused on that have to do with things an individual can do, and then we also know that as much as 60 to 70% of burnout factors relate to the organization or the environmental context in which a professional works. So part of the answer to more global burnout has to do with things that are in the systems that physicians work in, hospital-based systems, things like that. Do, do we have enough psychiatrists in the United States? Oh, absolutely not. So we know that we're, we're short by as many, you know, by 10,000 or more psychiatrists that we're very short on. Um, uh, exact numbers are kind of hard to say. But what, what's been interesting, whereas, you know, psychiatry has been through a period of not being the most in-demand uh, profession for the last several years, our residency slots have filled uh, universally. So now we're in a situation where very good um, uh, graduates from well-ranked schools are not able to get residencies in psychiatry. So what's but the, is, what's the solution to this problem? That the capacity to, to educate psychiatrists. So how can we get more psychiatrists if we're filling up all our residency slots? Well, we need to work with that. So, you know, one thing that's happened in a few institutions is, you know, the, the way a lot of residency training is funded depends on an institution having a certain num- total number of slots, and within that, uh, the training institutions can decide how many go to surgery, how many go to pediatrics, general medicine, those kinds of things. And some institutions already have swapped out some of their slots that were in other specialties for slots in psychiatry. But we really, the the number of training slots nationally hasn't been adjusted in some period of time. And so part of the answer to that is to adjust nationally the whole number of slots that are available for institutions to, to use. So 
we know that we've also seen, interestingly, sort of a new trend in, because of the demand and the recognized need for psychiatry, some, uh, there have been a small number of programs that have popped up that are privately funded because a, a large healthcare system knows that it needs more slots, and so rather than typical funding through government sources, the funding's come from institutional, from donors or the institutions themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, you know, high demand, and there's some things that have been set in place to answer that, but we still will not produce enough to meet the need. You know, one area that I've worked on in the past and I know has been an area of interest to you is that of postpartum depression. And is there an increased incident of this condition? And, and what role should psychiatrists be playing in identifying and treating postpartum depression? Well, so I, I, I think it's hard for us to know whether there's an increased actual incidence or prevalence of uh, the circumstance. But what is clear is that we've paid more attention to it. Uh, nationally, so there's a much greater awareness of the impact that depression and other uh, illnesses can have in the postpartum period, but also, you know, peripartum in, in, at any time during pregnancy. So we've become much more aware of and tuned into that. And so, yes, that can have a big impact. It's kind of a double, a double whammy of sorts because, of course, it can impact the mother, uh, but it can also impact the child and really the whole family unit that's involved in issues that come about when the mother's not able to fully act in the role of, of uh, mothering because she's impaired with a mental illness, particularly depression. So yes, that's that's of, of great interest to us and something that we need to pay a lot of attention to. There's some models. One of the interesting things that I came across, one of the opportunities I had as president was to uh, give awards to several different programs that looked at things. And one of the one of the models that's of great interest is uh, a model that's in Massachusetts that we were able to award one of the APA awards of distinction for was a, a program that provided a telephone-based consultation to GYN uh, or obstetricians who um, wanted some specialty consultation from a psychiatrist um, for treatment of peripartum depression. So this is a program that's called MCPAP, but it's based after um, in Massachusetts with the state where this was, where um, um, GYNs are, are people that are involved in, in delivery of uh, in perioperative care of individuals, pregnant mothers and postpartum mothers can call to get specialty information, specialty recommendations from a, a psychiatrist. When a psychiatrist... There can... are models. I'm sorry. I was going to say, there are models out there like that, and, you know, the funding for those kinds of things or something that... Yeah, and yeah. certainly as, a, as an old liaison CL psychiatrist, uh, I know that some of the technical difficulties that can come up, for instance... When a psychiatrist collaborates with an obstetrician by telecommunication, uh, phone, or some of the modern techniques, is there a system where they're paid for their time in this regard? It, no, not, there's not a way to bill for it in, in both systems. The um, this Massachusetts program has had a, I believe it uh, had a grant program that initiated sort of the hub to be created that created the call center that sort of worked with this, and the time was, um, I believe it was basically voluntary on the part of the psychiatrist, so that does need to be uh, worked out. Okay. Uh, now, during your year as president, uh, you have also focused attention on innovation as a priority. Can you give some examples? I suppose the one you were just talking about would be one, but some examples how innovation may impact the practice of psychiatry? Yeah, so we don't really know the full potential of that. Um, what it, the sort of the notion, the story that I tell that has to do with the notion of how this all started was one night, and sort of before, but one night when our, uh, my, uh, I noticed that my dog hadn't been eaten for a couple of days, and so I was trying to figure out, you know, how to, what to do. I was in a situation where my, myself or my husband or family 
no one was in a good situation to, to take the day off the next day and take the dog to the vet. And so I scattered around, did what, you know, modern families do, scattered around on, consulted with Dr. Google, so to speak, on, you know, what, what to do about the dog. And uh, I came across this uh, online uh, veterinary service. And I thought, well, I don't know if this is a real thing or not, or if it's a gimmick, but, but I, you know, went onto the website and there came, it was sort of set up like a chat and someone asked me a little bit about what the features, what the symptoms of the dog were, and I answered a few questions, and um, then it said, you know, okay, for the charge for this will be a consultation fee of, I think it was, I don't remember what it was, something between 20 and $40, something like that, and we'll connect you to a real vet, and they can answer the question, and so I was a little bit skeptical, but uh, paid, you know, put in my credit card number, I don't, I'm not sure why I did that, but I was kind of thinking how hard it would be to take a full day off of work the next day, because the dog was clearly, you know, not looking good. And the vet, there came on a vet, he said it was licensed to practice, uh, and I put in the symptoms of the dog, he gave me sort of in real time some um, some things to try, and that was sort of the end of that. I tried what they said to do, and it worked, and um, it was a great sort of interaction. And so I thought, well, I wonder if this is happening in medicine, and it turns out that there are, you know, medical consultation settings like that that are completely outside of the normal sort of doctor's visit kinds of things and that really got me thinking about what kinds of things have we not even conceived of or on the edge of our pre-conscious with regards to how these things might be available to practice and so and, and how they might impact the practice of psychiatry and what opportunities there might be and, and what do we need to do as an organization the American Psychiatric Association as an organization to prepare our members to be more um, capable of embracing changes like this and working with it rather than just insisting that it wasn't going to be effective. So we have this work group that we formed that looked at various, several different aspects of innovation and, and some ideas for how we might be able to equip the APA and our members to think forward about opportunities that might impact the way that we practice uh, moving forward. Do you think that there'll be virtual reality sessions in the near future? Well, I think it's already happening. So it's of course, we all know about, at this point in time, in 2018, we all know about telepsychiatry and the opportunities that happen with that, and that's most telepsychiatry is done at a scheduled time, you know, 2 o'clock on Wednesday's your time, and the psychiatrist and the, the patient um, convene at the same time and sort of exchange information that way. But there's already things that are done in what they call asynchronous consultations that are done sort of patient or the person in that role puts in their information, and the psychiatrist later give them feedback on that. There are ways of interacting uh, through uh, apps or text-style messaging uh, with contact people and coaching of individuals. And so there's a lot of things in that space that are being developed. And I, I feel like our profession needs to know a little bit about that so we can understand what is viable and what is sure. what resonates with the way that we interact with people versus what what is not really has no evidence behind it and is not really demonstrated to be effective in addressing the concerns that people have with no mental illnesses. Well, well, why should the patient have to travel uh, an hour or whatever time to get to the office when you both can put on a pair of virtual reality glasses and practically um, right. feel you're in the same room? That's right. And younger generations, increasingly younger generations, are just not going to be able to tolerate the business of having to go to an office uh, you know, and, and, and do that. So I, I think it's important uh, moving forward for us to think about that. How about advanced genetic testing for drugs and maybe even genetic testing giving us some clues about therapy and diagnosis? Well, I mean, I think we, we have some 
that right now. There's some debates, of course, in our field about what you know, what's how valuable that can be, or for whom it's the most valuable already, with sort of testing of different metabolic processes and different medications. But uh, I think we haven't reached the full maturity with with what kinds of things we'll be able to tell in the future with regards to that. So I think we're on the edge of being able to benefit from you know what people call precision medicine or personalized medicine. Let, let me push it one step further. Do you think computers will ever be able to do psychotherapy? No, I don't. I, but I believe they'll be able to help quite a bit with, with certain things, but I, I don't believe that a, uh, a computer can do the kinds of things fully that a human interaction can do. I think there's something, there's some special sauce to the human interaction that's pretty important. Okay. Any special new projects that you're planning now that you won't be so busy as APA president? Well, so uh, our new, our incoming president or current president, uh, Dr. Stewart, has um, has mentioned some concern or put some priority on international uh, um, activities, and I'm hoping that I can help her uh, with that. I'm, I'm hoping to create some opportunities for um, for exchange internationally with um, some of the, the peers that we have uh, internationally to sort of learn about and exchange how we do things in our system and also what we can learn from other individuals. I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, healthcare systems, and I think we have a lot to learn from countries that have more uh, universally available healthcare. So I'm hoping to help uh, Dr. Stewart with, uh, with her international interest. And can you say anything about what you might be doing in, as you resume your position in SAMHSA? Um, well, so that's, that's something I'll be able to turn full attention to. Um, the, the, I, my day job, so to speak, is working as, at the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and we're, a lot of changes are happening there, and so we're, we're, uh, we're working on that. But that's um, something we can talk about in another, in another, another iteration, if you'd like to. In the oh, I, I definitely would, and I appreciate that offer. And I want to thank you so much, Dr. Anita Everett, immediate past president of the APA. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. I appreciate tremendously your uh, your having me, and yes, I'd, I'd love to come back at some point and talk with you with some of my other hats. Great. Well, thank you again. This concludes today's podcast. Your comments are always welcome at mblumenfield at gmail.com. That's M-B-L-U-M-E-N-F-I-E-L-D at gmail.com. This is Dr. Michael Bluenfield wishing you a pleasant day.